Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles, plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at filmstruck.com. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital producer. In 1970, a film written by, directed by, and starring Barbara Loden was released with little fanfare. Wanda followed a woman in eastern Pennsylvania who surrenders her children to her ex-husband, drifts around, and eventually participates in a poorly conceived bank robbery. Shot with a quasi-documentary style on location across coal country, Wanda is a complicated film that refuses easy interpretation and, adding to its fascination, Loden never shot another narrative film and died before it was, quote, rediscovered. In the July-August issue, David Thompson tackles the subject of Loden's life, Natalie Leger's book about Wanda and Loden, and the film itself. To dive deeper into all three, I was joined by Margaret Barton-Fumo, a longtime contributor to Film Comment. Shani Enelo, author of Method Acting and Its Discontents. And Nick Pinkerton, longtime contributor to Film Comment and sundry other publications. Here's our conversation. Thank you all for coming today. And we're going to be talking about two things. Well, two things are the starting point. But as Natalie Leger's book called Sweet for Barbara Loden proves, one a film is just a point to talk about the entire world and yourself and your relation to it and maybe also Barbara Loden. So we're going to be talking about Wanda, the film, and then also Leger's book sort of reflecting, refracting, doing all sorts of interesting things with the film, Barbara Loden's life and her own life. David Thompson wrote a feature about Leger's book in the new issue. But before we dive into all of that, uh, Shani, could you talk about who Barbara Loden was? Yes, Back, sure. Because part of part of what, or in, and maybe also talk about how Leger characterizes her. Barbara Loden was a first and sort of model slash want slash aspiring actress who came to New York from North Carolina where she grew up and did a number of kind of pseudo modeling gigs um, which she characterized as cheesecake modeling although apparently some of it was a bit more highbrow than that she ended up working at the Copacabana and she ended up getting a role um, as a sidekick on a TV show so she had a number of you know these sort of shall we say not very serious you know acting jobs Um, she at the same time time, though, was taking classes with Paul Mann um, and and became a member of the Actors Studio. She met uh, Ilya Kazan um, while he was filming A Face in the Crowd, and they had a tempestuous affair that lasted a very <laughs> long time. And after the death of Kazan's first wife, Molly, um, sometime, sometime after, they ended up marrying and they stayed together until her death of cancer in 1980. Um, so she had a number of su- 
supporting roles in films, including perhaps most notably Splendor in the Grass, where she plays uh, Warren Beatty's slutty older sister. It's a great role. Um, she also very famously plays the Marilyn Monroe character in Arthur Miller's After the Fall, um, which Suzanne directs at the Lincoln Center Repertory. It's a very lauded performance. She wins a Tony for it. And, you know, after that, she so, it sort of seems like she maybe is poised for a illustrious career as an actress, but it never really materializes. And she decided at some point in the 60s that she wanted to try making films. It took her a long time to raise the money to do so, um, but she eventually scrounged together money to make Wanda, which she finished in 1970, or released in 1970. And, you know, after that, the film was not very well distributed at all. Um, it played at a few art house theaters and she couldn't find work after that. She wanted to make another film. She had a couple ideas. She ended up making a very interesting 25 minute educational film that I actually talk about in an article in Film Comment in the September October issue called The Frontier Experience, uh, which uh, Leger doesn't talk about at all which is often like forgotten. But then she never made anything else. She got sick with cancer and, and died when she was 48. I would briefly mention it wasn't just any television show she was on, but the Ernie Kovacs show. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Thank the, you. The program that long before Twin Peaks Episode 8 brought the avant-garde to American living rooms. Yes. Those uh, with uh, this internet can see uh, a great clip of Barbara Loden being sawed in half by Ernie Kovacs' magician, Matzo Heppelwhite. <laughs> so maybe not the most significant of her work, but nevertheless, nevertheless a significant enterprise to have contributed to. Yes, yes. indeed, indeed. Um, she was also in a, I think, made-for-TV movie with Burt Lancaster called Iron Cowboy. She did a number of these like kind of amazing, weird little things um in addition to her more famous work yeah which would seemingly leave her ripe for rediscovery mm -hmm. by a french interesting person <laughs> a french writer and leger was originally assigned to do a short entry in an encyclopedia she never says which encyclopedia it's just some film encyclopedia and instead while researching for this little blurb and I think there's even a part of the book where Leger says like, oh, well, I just wanted to, I wanted to do too much research to write a short thing because that's what I do. Doesn't everyone do this? And it's like, no. Um, but she, she um, started researching and researching all this stuff about Wanda and Barbara Loden and was sort of shocked to find how little information there was about any of this stuff. And Margaret, maybe you could say more about the book itself and sort of what it tries to do and what sure, it does. Sure, yeah. And forgive me if I repeat myself a little bit from the, we did another podcast a while ago with Molly Haskell where I talked about the book. Yeah, this encyclopedia entry turned into this obsessive research project. <laughs> and the book mixes kind of a personal essay with very detailed descriptions of the film intermittently throughout the book. And the film, as we know, was inspired by a uh, newspaper article about a woman who tried to, I think she was a bank robber. Yeah, she, she was, was a, an accomplice. She was an accomplice to a bank robber and she was sentenced to 20 years in jail and she actually had the very sad audacity to thank the judge at the sentencing. And 
Loden became fascinated with this woman and her sort of sense of hopelessness and what would lead her to become that apathetic. But Leger, interestingly, views the film Wanda as an example of a woman telling her own story through that of another woman. And she's very interested in the difficulty of telling a story simply, Leger is. And she talks about that a lot throughout the book. But the book itself is a very like distracted exercise in simple storytelling itself. And um, her book, I think the book en- enriches the film in some ways when she's talking about the descriptions. But as we've discussed before, too, Leger herself is kind of a rare bird. And this comes through in her in her writing. But she really teases out the major themes of the film of female passivity and loneliness and without making any real like arguments about the film. Not having read the book, it strikes me that the encouragement to read it as a semi-autobiographical work or a kind of what-if autobiography of Loden is something that she herself advanced in interviews around the time of its release, and I wonder if this comes into the book at all. I, I specifically was looking at a profile of Loden in the New York Times uh, in March of 71 by McCandlich Phillips, in which she says, I've been like that myself. I came from a rural region where people have a hard time. They don't have time for wittily observing the things around them. They're not concerned about anything more than existing from day to day. They're not stupid. They're ignorant. Everything is ugly around them. The architecture, the town, the clothing they wear, everything they see is ugly. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not a great leap to <laughs> to read it as Loden looking back on a youth of great deprivation and hardship and very much lacking in affection and extrapolating, okay, what if 20 years earlier I hadn't changed my context totally. Yeah, what I I mean, what I think is interesting is, and this isn't something that um, Leger discusses at all, but that drive to plumb the depths of your own autobiography for artistic material, you know, is really a central part of um, the ethos of method acting that Barbara Loden was very much involved in. Although I agree that it's very attractive to do as Leger does and, you know, read Wanda as, you know, this autobiographical portrait of, of Barbara Loden, I also think there's a real, there's a trap there. There's a real danger there. There's this way in which that that sort of negates her artistry, right? Or her craft, right? If this is just sort of, you know, her cri de cur about her life, then we really don't, you know, get a sense that this was a crafted, you know, directed film that had particular aesthetic and ideological interests that she was interested in exploring as an artist, crafting it. And I think it also leads in the book to this kind of universalizing of the woman as actress motif, which has a problematic history. And I think in, you know, within method acting, it has a problematic history too. And it, you know, sort of ends up being used to talk about certain actors like Marilyn Monroe herself and, you know, many others uh, that I find ultimately a little condescending. It makes it about, you know, the person instead of their their work, their craft, their, their art. Yeah, I would say that just because she does, it is, there are moments of, fiction in this right I mean there are or you get a sense that you get a sense of why Barbara Loden's son is annoyed with Natalie Leger when Natalie Leger calls him up and is like can I look at her papers well what do you want to see 
oh, nothing in particular. And it's like, well, of course he's not going to get back to you if you don't get, like, just, why don't you say the title of the film that you're obsessed with? Did this really happen? Or is this just sort of like a fiction that she creates within this book to sort of make things more mysterious, let's say? Because she also says that people who actually, you know, are still alive, who worked on the film, don't want to talk to her. And that's very interesting too and it is weird you know you were saying negating that artistry even though Leger explicitly states I'm interested in how she tells a simple story and it, there's very little analysis about how that actually happened right no exactly I mean I was really struck in the book at how much Leger takes her as an actress rather than as a director right I mean she's really really pushing on her performance you know as the key work of art in the film as opposed to its direction it's interesting to see, particularly as the stature of this movie has grown through the years, and we're talking about one sort of angle through which Loden's conscious artistic contribution is negated, but as the status of this movie, as its reputation has grown through the years, how much suddenly people really want a piece of it. And yeah. this was true at the time when Ilya Kazan was writing his autobiography and at which point uh, Miss Loden uh, had departed this mortal coil and he credits himself as drafting the initial script and then conceding that it was reworked to a degree where it became her own thing. Nicholas Proferis, I believe, the director of photography, who also may or may not have had some kind of uh, intimate relationship with Miss Loden, has said things to the effect, I believe, that he thinks it's a co-directed movie because his contributions were so great. He was somebody who had worked principally in documentary before with, um, I think, Pennebaker and the Maysoles, and went on to shoot uh, The Visitors for Kazan in much the same style. And, you know, the old saying goes, uh, success has many fathers. In this case, we at least have two who have sort of posthumously tried to stake a larger claim to this movie than either seemed interested in doing in 1971. And how very apt this is when the movie that we're dealing with is so concerned with a character whose defining trait is passivity, is sort of going with the flow, being blown whither she may, wherever somebody is willing to like stake her money for a rolling rock, that's where she is. To me, like reading contemporary interviews with Loden, and you can see her, for example, there's a clip readily viewable of her on uh, the Mike Wallace show Mm -hmm. uh, with John Lennon and Yoko Ono, and she's clearly a very shy person not entirely comfortable with the public eye, but at one and the same time, if you read her interviews, if you listen to what she has to say about the movie, there is no doubt whatsoever that this is somebody with a very, very firm idea of what they want to do with moving pictures. And I think it's very tempting when you look at that tremulent manner of self-presentation to think, okay, this is somebody who has sort of allowed themselves to be pushed around by stronger and more experienced collaborators. 
but I think that's really belied by the way she talks about her work. Like, this is not somebody who just got on the set and was like, oh, gee whiz, what do you think I should do, Nikki? Like, no. <laughs> right, right. No, exactly. That's the other problem, of course, with collapsing the character and the artist, yeah. right? Is that, you know. I mean, yeah, the, the affinities kind of are there, yeah. but at, this, at one and the same time, they're not. They're not. She's not Wanda. She had the wherewithal and drive to leave Mary in North Carolina. Right. And by hook and by crook, do some very interesting things as a creative person. So, yeah, we should not be not given too much to the temptation to find one and the same person here. And maybe we could talk a bit about the film itself, because it is a really remarkable film. And when it ends, I felt very sad that she never made another fiction film because it is so incredible. Throughout Leger's book, she sort of hones in on these scenes and these little details. And I mean, obviously, I'm not let Natalie Leger, I'm not going to pay attention to the same things, but just like the food that Wanda eats throughout is, it says so much. After being jilted by the guy who bought her the rolling rock and, and she just walks into this bar and she gets a glass of milk and some potato chips and that's her dinner and, and then she she eats a single potato chip with several bites i've yes. always noticed that too yes <laughs> yes and then you know later on when she's with the bank robber that it's going to sort of who really mr. takes over, dennis mr dennis who insists that she call him mr dennis i can't wait to talk about mr dennis let me just say that she's at a diner with this guy and um she eats a plate of spaghetti and it's like, okay, so non-American listeners, hot tip. You may associate diners with hamburgers and fries. That is the correct association. You never <laughs> want to order a plate of pasta at a diner because it's probably going to have like ketchup instead of pasta sauce. Like it's the one of the grossest things you could possibly order. And it also says like, well, this is a diner that would offer that as an option. So probably the menu is like five pages long and there are like 500 different things you can order and they're all gross. But these little things throughout that are just so evocative the way that she eats the pasta irritates mr dennis so yes, much exactly the way that she and you notice the way that she even holds her fork is mm -hmm. kind of backwards yeah and then she has this whole interaction with him where she's wiping her bread on the plate and she yes. says it's that's just the best part isn't it isn't it yeah. that's just the best part huh she says huh after yeah <laughs> after everything she says because she's anticipating a reaction from him and mm -hmm. he's usually just either nothing or scorn yes <laughs> thinking about her eating habits and her consumption habits in general, you know, get us to what I think is one of the most interesting things about the film, which is its portrayal of class, right? It's, yes. And that is something else that that I was really sad was missing from Leger's book, you know, yes. is that this is this is not just a story of a housewife who leaves everything for um, unclear reasons in the sort of, you know, ambiguously liberatory slash self-destructive way, right? No, no, it's explicitly about a working class woman who does that, yeah. right? And so the trope of the, of the house housewife leaving her family, you know, is almost always the middle class housewife. And that's also where the film is different from like Jean Dillman, you know, right. is that even, you know, Jean Dillman is not bourgeois, but she's very, you know, she's clearly petite bourgeois, right? She's clearly, right. you know, maintaining middle class morals and, and Wanda is totally not. And that's what's so interesting, I think. And this is not just any milieu. This is a very, this is like the poorest Appalachia, one of the poorest 
of the poor, these people who are just like constantly shit on, you know, throughout history to up until this day, right now it's happening. And Loden talked about the garbage, people just surrounded by garbage. You know, the film opens with a giant slag heap, trucks driving over it and just the noise of that and that it's happening before people are even awake. This is just what it sounds like to be here, right? Well, the opening is just exceptional. Yes. Not only that image of uh, Loden as Barbara crossing the slag heaps, this little speck of white in this vast landscape of just heaped anthracite coal and coal dust, uh, which I was recalling earlier the first time that I saw the movie, it was on a bootleg uh, rented from uh, Mondo Kim's and in the best of circumstances it's cruddy but this is it, it almost like the cruddier it looks the more suit the more yeah. suiting it is and always always this stayed with me but what upon reviewing strikes me even more is the strange way that like the space in that household is delineated yeah. at the opening as we're sort of wandering around blindly looking for something like a protagonist and a couple of potential candidates wander into view. We hear this industrial clangor going on outside, a squalling baby. And then finally, finally, this disheveled figure. Who is covered head to toe with a blanket. And just straight up like sleeping brawn panties on yeah. the couch. Mm-hmm. The panties, which we'll later see like slightly moth-eaten in yeah. the hotel room yeah. with Mr. Dennis. It's really a movie that is so much in the detail work. Mm-hmm. It's in the holes in the underwear. It's in the you know wonderful scene in which Mr. Dennis is giving very, very strict instructions as to how he likes his three hamburgers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. No garbage. that opening that bizarre little scene with you know maybe her sister right we assume right who knows Um, i thought it was just a friend or a friend right we don't know who it is i was watching with a friend and he commented oh it's like streetcar named desire and it is like there's this weird way that this film sort of auditions genres and discards them you know and that first scene could be with the you know the working class milia the sister possible sister figure with the baby and then the other woman on the couch right i mean that's the streetcar named desire setup you know it it flirts with several other genres before we finally get its uneasy fit with the crime genre yeah loden has among the explanations she's given for her attraction in the movie one of them was to make a sort of anti-Bonnie and Clyde featuring, you know, a film featuring her old uh, co-star, Warren Beatty. And in this, she actually has something in common with uh, Leonard Castle, who made the very idiosyncratic and wonderful movie, The Honeymoon Killers. Mm. But for whatever reason, like the the impact of Bonnie and Clyde was so great that there were a lot of filmmakers in its immediate aftermath who wanted to sort of push back against it and it's interesting too because i think bonnie and clyde arthur penn's movie is so often pointed to as this kind of watershed moment in you know new hollywood realism but for a lot of people it was not going far enough mm-hmm. and I'm paraphrasing a bit, but Loden's argument was like, these sort of people wouldn't be in the criminal world. Like their genes are too good. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, Exactly. 
Which, I mean, it's interesting because Loden's a very, very beautiful woman. So, you know, saying that these are over-glamorous kind of underclass types is a little interesting. But I think because accounts say that she had had the script in the bag for something like six years, tinkering with it. So by the time she finally makes it, I buy her. I buy everything that she does in there. I don't know if six years earlier I would have bought Barbara Loden as Wanda Gronkowski, you know, but Mm -hmm. she Mm -hmm. definitely dresses down Mm -hmm. just fine in it. And then the other major character who is the sort of highwayman who she winds up getting shacked up with, the aforementioned Mr. Dennis, this guy Michael Higgins. And this is a character like I've never seen a less glamorous criminal oh. in cinema. Yeah. He he's just like the epitome of little man. You know, he's never not wearing a suit in the film. Well, he's got tidy whities on in, right. the, in the hotel. But scene. that was back but that was back when tidy whities were not the comedy underpants for men. Boxers were the comedy underpants for men. Mm. But I digress. <laughs> He's got his little wiry mustache. Well, the other, I'm going to say this about Lady Day's book and then we can stop making fun of it. She doesn't really talk about the other actors at all, right? Like, it's very bizarre that you have somebody as evocative as Michael Higgins and it's like, obviously throughout the film there are a lot of people who are just not professionals sort of coming up to this and then you have somebody like this and it's like well where did she find him what is his background and why you know is this autobiographical for him where you know his dad was a failure and he just he channeled that into this fantastic performance the two of them were the only two professional actors in the film right yeah and and i believe i hope i'm not getting this wrong but i believe he was also associated with the actor's studio he was certainly in a sort of new york Uh, actor scene so maybe he was channeling i think we could all kind of hold court on the subject of mr dennis (laughs) yes because i like he is i don't know that you'll find a more thoroughgoing failure in american pictures and as you know the american cinema of the 1970s was sort of uniquely preoccupied with failure but mr dennis Uh, He's on another level entirely. Like, he's just old enough and also not old enough to have reached just the perfect plateau of non-accomplishment in life. If he were 10 years younger, there could be something sexy about him. If he was 10 years older, he could be like a a relic of another era. As it is, he's like 47 with a slight paunch, constantly aggravated, hemorrhoidal, probably constipated from his revolting diet. His father can barely stand to look at him. He's got like R. Crumb vibes, too. It's true. Like. Um, He's just, you know, if he just had like some big butt woman to ride around, he wouldn't need to rob that bank. He could just find joy in that. But we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Now you can stream critically acclaimed films and cult favorites from the world's greatest film libraries with Filmstruck. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection. Filmstruck brings you a bounty of independent and foreign titles updated weekly plus original bonus material and expert commentary. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free 14-day trial today at filmstruck.com. 
And yet he always looks down on Wanda. Yeah. You know, he keeps yeah. picking on her, really, for yeah. being with her family, even though he's married himself. Or There's this exchange between the two of them that really struck me where they're sitting out on the car out in the middle of wherever, kind of enjoying um, bottled Jack Daniels or whatever and some beers and snacks. <laughs> and she says, I never did have anything. I never will have anything. And then he says you don't want anything you won't have anything if you don't have anything you're nothing you may as well be dead you're not even a citizen of the united states and she says well i may as well be dead then in such a chipper way too yeah yeah well you know in a kind of slightly little biting way you know there's like a little sardonic tone she gets there that i think is interesting i wonder if that's in the spaghetti scene too right where there's a little bit there are these moments where you know wanda sort of flips out of her much vaunted passivity right and says these kind of little slightly ironic little biting things that we're not really sure if she's aware of being uh teasing or not but I think that's sort of one of them. Well, I think what part of what makes it such an interesting performance is that it's not dour, that it's not really sunken into a morass of miserableism. There's a lightness to it, which makes it actually much more poignant and painful than it would be if we just got a lot of shots of you know, Loden staring off into the middle distance and wondering if there's something else out there. Like there's a little lightness and a little sort of Philip that she puts onto the the line readings that actually makes them stick in your craw much more. And she's a drifter, you know, she's, she's a drifter and there's always that thought probably in the back of her mind that there'll be something else that Mm. she can move on to. And at the end of the film, she does. She just sort of wanders onto this bar and all these people start to kind of like drunkenly (laughs) take care of her, give her beer, give her a hot dog, you know, and that's kind of like where she's at in her life, drifting from one situation to another. Yeah. I have to say that last scene, I think is among the most interesting scenes in the movie, because if the whole film has, you know, everything is so degraded, right? It's so ugly. Everything is so hideous. You know, that last scene, actually, weirdly enough, things kind of get upbeat and fun, right? <laughs> and we've got this kind of like fun Appalachian music, right? It's like suddenly this world that we're in is not just filled with these horribly depressed uh, failures. There's this little celebratory mood at the very end. And of course, it's contrasted by Wanda, who still, you know, who has just fought off a race and still looks, you know, pretty disheveled and and unhappy. But, you know, there are these moments where the other woman who invites her into the bar kind of looks at her with something like recognition, right? There's some sense that actually there is perhaps a world that could hold Wanda if she allowed it to. And therein, I think, lies the really, really painful part of it is that she is this essentially, like, liminal character who her ship has sailed like Wanda's not gonna move to New York and kill an audition and rocket to the top that's not gonna happen and clearly she is not able to plug herself into the actual social life that's around her and I think you're absolutely right like I think it would be a much less interesting movie without that last scene because here you see at last some kind of communal feeling you see some kind of like holistic culture you see that 
you know, for better or for worse, people live here. Right. And they do as best they can. And she is simply not able to settle for yeah. that. Yeah. Although I think it's also a nod to her journey being cyclical mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. earlier in the film, I think it's the husband at the at the divorce hearing, someone mentions how she just goes out drinking all the time. And it seems like she's kind of slipping back into that habit, I think, at the end of the film. I mean, obviously, so much of the action of the film comes from her going into a bar and just seeing what happens. The three different men that sort of take control of her in the film are just bar hookups, right? And so it's it's not just a... Alcohol isn't the only dependency she has, obviously. It is heartbreaking, and you kind of understand, it's like, this is just someone who can't connect with society at all. Yeah, and again, I mean, I think that's what really separates this story from the more typical middle-class, you know, runaway woman story, right? Mm-hmm. Where in, in that trope, the woman has abilities, and they're not being allowed to flourish, right? She's not being allowed to use them in some Start way. Start a dress shop. Right, for instance, right? right. <laughs> right, no, right. Use, use her, use her PhD in yes, English. Exactly, right? That's sort of the trope, right? From yeah. a doll's house to, you know, Betty Friedan, right? It's like the woman, you know, has capacities that aren't being recognized and, and allowed to shine. Wanda has no abilities. She has no capacities, right? And that's, you know, really crucial about her. So the question is, how can we look at this person with no abilities and never had anything, doesn't want anything, and still see her as a subject. I sort of see that that little scene that you just quoted, Margaret, as like the scene where Mr. Dennis sort of tries to, he tries to teach her how to be a, an American subject, right? Like how to be, you know, he tries to constitute her as an American subject. And he does this in other ways too, right? By making her dress up and throw away the curlers. And he's sort of trying to construct her as like a viable subject. And, you know, she just refuses it and refuses it. So then, you know, we're sort of left in, I I feel like the film is almost in a way there's kind of a dare to its audience, right? Of how can you look at this woman as not just a completely degraded, pathetic nothing? How can you see something in this woman that is recognizable or worthy of attention or or time. And to go back to Loden drawing from her own personal experience, I also link that sort of interaction to one of her quotes that was in an interview, I think, but Leger quotes her as saying that she made the film as a way of confirming her own existence. There's one moment in particular that I find almost unbearably poignant, which comes after Wanda and Mr. Dennis have gone to the house of the bank manager. Uh, They're trying to hold up a a bank in downtown Scranton, and it's one of the most ineptly plotted robberies of all time, which involves the least convincing fake bomb uh, imaginable being placed in the lap of the uh, bank manager's family and him, him being driven downtown during business hours to open the vault. A little bit before. Well, I mean, there's already the security guys there. Yeah. Like, and so completely pathetically ill-equipped uh, as a criminal as Mr. Dennis that the husky middle-aged bank manager like gets him in a headlock (laughs) (laughs) and wanda manages to get the gun away and to stick it to the bank manager's back and get things back on course and as they go outside and they're getting into their separate cars after wanda has to go and remind mr dennis to give her the car keys it's again this guy does not have his shit together (laughs) he gives her a few words of approbation and she lights up right and 
for reasons I don't wholly understand, this movie has sometimes been called Bressonian, which in terms of style is not particularly accurate. But the nearest thing that I can compare that to is the bumper cars moment in Mouchette, where you see somebody who has just been shit on by the world for the entire course of the movie suddenly for a moment get a little cloud break and a little glimmer of approval approbation mm-hmm. the things that all of us mm-hmm. require mm-hmm. and then of course it goes to you know hell immediately thereafter but i mean for some i guess it's an impenetrably pathetic character right. but at that moment like you know just we wanda and the and the first show of friendliness for Mr. Dennis too, the first and only. I wonder if, you know, a more contemporary reference we could use or comparison we could make is is between Wanda and some of the Darden brothers films, right? Which also similarly have this kind of unrelenting ugliness um, that is uh, often broken by this, by a moment where, you know, a character holds out to another a, a, the possibility of care, right? The possibility of affection or love. And, you know, there, there are these moments where the characters are, are reaching towards that. Which, which reminds me of what you just how you just described, Wanda. Without getting into whatever I may think about the Darden brothers, one thing that's interesting is obviously very big to their body of work is the collective narratives of Judeo-Christian tradition. And it's very interesting the role that the little visit that Wanda and Mr. Dennis mm pay to this uh, sort of roadside attraction catacomb yes which is the new jerusalem right or yeah. it's, this it's it is the holy land usa theme park in waterbury connecticut yes. and i do not know exactly what to do with that scene where the she gets a sort of guided tour of this simulacra of the sort of early Christian catacombs where there are these dioramas of Christians being fed to the lions. And I mean, this is part of the sort of deadpan that it makes the movie such an endlessly fascinating object is while watching it, you're like, okay, what is going on? And what is Wanda thinking Mm -hmm, during mm -hmm, this? mm -hmm. Because we've had no intimation of like religious feeling playing any part in her life nor do we get any afterwards and i i mean that is why i think this movie exerts a fascination for me that the that the dardens never have is i understand the template that they're working off of and that they're doing variations on whereas this thing is just so much off the reservation. Something that I remember noticing in that scene is we do see, you know, there are these various biblical quotations, you know, painted on boards on the side of this hill. And there's one that we can see for a long time, which is about enmity between man and woman. I I cannot quote scripture for you. You know, that was always sort of how I read this scene is there's something going on with obviously Mr. Dennis and his father in that scene, right? There's a kind of male religious trajectory that's being evoked that Wanda is apart from and perhaps even semi, you know, we never get the sense that she's critical of it, but is perhaps structurally posited as a criticism of it. 
patriarchy isn't fun for men sometimes. <laughs> I don't think it's fun for Mr. Dennis. This no. Dennis is not having fun. <laughs> no. No. Well, let's see. Is there anything else people want to get to? Even about the book? Because I feel like we were sort of mean to the book. Well, you see, well yeah. We could we still be mean, but you said you had some major problems with it. Yeah. Oh, I was yeah. curious to hear. No, honestly, I, I, I find a lot to admire about the book. I really enjoyed reading it. I think there are passages that are beautifully written, and I think there's some really rich thinking in there. But I guess one of my big conceptual issues is this evasion of class, right? That where I feel like in comparing, you know, Wanda and Loden to her mother, to uh, Jean Dealman, you know, to herself, there's actually this, you know, this kind of refusal to deal with the issue of class, which to me is so central to the text of the film. You know, without without making too many specious nationalistic generalizations, I forget who said in France, even the working class is petite bourgeois. Like there's something <laughs> about the American working class that is so specifically evoked in this film that I feel like Leger doesn't doesn't really get doesn't really get into it I guess the other the other issue that I have with it uh, what I alluded to before this sort of woman as actress universalization of that trope is for a book that is ostensibly so much about a woman's self-determination or the difficulties of women's self-determination and the difficulty of writing as a woman or thinking as a woman, she interviews an awful lot of men <laughs> or and she goes to talk to an awful lot of men. She tries to talk to an awful lot of men. And, you know, I, I was thinking about this in particular because I discovered that Joan McLean Silver and Barbara Loden were actually really close friends. And they made this educational film together and they maintained contact for a number of years um, and I just wonder you know where's the portrait of Barbara Loden as female artist among female artists who is connected to other women and who is not just an object of Kazan's uh, <laughs> and, and, whatever and close with Yoko Ono as close well with Yoko Ono. Yeah. right there you go yeah. So where's that right? Like where's that Loden? Mm -hmm. That seems to me actually a much a much more interesting Loden than the sort of repressed, objectified, pushed aside Loden. Recovering right. cheesecake, model. right? Recovering cheesecake Loden, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. What attracted you to the book, Margaret? Just I mean, it is like it is beautiful to read. Yeah, and yeah. I, that's that's number one actually. Mm -hmm. I think her prose uh, I really like a lot. I really enjoyed reading it. I mean, I haven't I haven't read Zona by Jeff Dyer, but that seems like the closest analog to this. Well, actually, you know, I, I think of the book in a what's been a mostly European tradition of the sort of essayistic novel about a quest to uncover the truth about someone who is dead, right? So Sebald is an obvious reference point. She even she even quotes Sebald at one point. But also uh, Patrick Modiano's Dora Bruder, right? Which is a, is a really interesting book about, about trying to find information about this young woman named Dora Bruder. It's part of this genre um, that doesn't so far as I know, really have a name. And it's an interesting genre, right? Because it's sort of always about, you know, the slipperiness of memory and the disappearance of the past and the effort to constitute oneself from a past that's always slipping away. Um, so in that sense, I think it's a, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting entry into that tradition. Since we're talking about French women standing for Barbara, I think we should at least give a brief shout out to Isabelle Huppert, who's been such a uh, such a champion of the film, which I think got its restoration UCLA, to the best of my remembrance, uh, in 2010, and was then trotted out in theaters across France. 
I, and I don't know what the actual timeline of the Leger books release in France was, 2012, something like mm, this. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting, and it's it would be worth sort of figuring out where the seeds of the Barbara Loden cult were first planted. Like, is it Dura? Is it Marguerite Dura? I mean, because she was a huge fan, right? And interviewed Kazan about the film. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, yeah. I mean, it was it was a known quantity to me when I was in film school in the late 90s early aughts though not readily viewable so yeah i don't know who kept those fires burning exactly yeah it's it's interesting to i mean to think about in light of i mean although i just made the argument that <laughs> i guess it just sounded like i said that the french cannot understand this movie uh, which i don't i don't want to say um but you know the way it's been moved over into the feminist avant-garde that's most associated with french filmmakers like you know like dura or ackerman you know and and what that uh, what kinds of readings of the film that enables and what kinds of readings perhaps that disenables or or um, doesn't doesn't allow for well this should be said of the french that they have a great capacity for miserableism i don't know an enormous amount about the reception of the film in 1971 but that some of the feminist criticisms saw really no angle through which wanda could be redeemed as a strong female character that there is you know there's no uh no angle from which this could be the read well that actually connects to a quote from the david thompson article that kind of stuck with me a little bit where he talks about the feminist response to the film that they in general were against wanda because yeah because she wasn't active she was too passive and he says instead of seeing that what awaited liberated women resembled the desolate condition felt by many men i think that's still a little bit off too yeah oh, totally yeah. no no i don't agree with that either um well it's interesting to think about right this the really deep split between american and french feminism right especially right. in the 70s right. and 80s where there's a very different very different ideas about what could constitute a feminism well could you just quickly say what those were oh God. for for, for all <laughs> yes, our sure for, no just just quickly for all the men listening who aren't uh familiar <laughs> yes. with these debates who um, feel a okay. little left out well, right very now. briefly you know american feminism was especially american second wave feminism was very focused on among other things legal protections right equality under the law there, there was a huge reaction against the psychologizing of women's suffering and a turn towards similar you know similar to the the way that the black liberation movement turned against the psychologizing of problems of people of color, right? There was a turn towards thinking about these as political and structural problems that needed to be fixed through direct action. Um, whereas in France, there was a much more robust uh, psychoanalytic feminist tradition. A lot of French feminists were influenced by Jacques Lacan's thinking about gender and sex. And so, you know, people were, there, there wasn't the same allergy to, you know, quote unquote psychology. And there was also an interest in thinking about ambivalence and even things like masochism as possible resources for considering female subjectivity. Right. Because it's unclear if it's a refusal to participate in society or if she's just literally unable. And, you know, if you read the story, the news item that inspired the story, 
says that this woman, the the actual woman, was sexually abused. And so if knowing that, you can't help but view the scene where she goes to this older man for money and he's like, don't worry, I'd do anything for you. That changes very, that becomes totally different. And so does, I think, a lot of her behavior in the film because it's like, again, it's not just somebody who's sort of like fed up with their surroundings or, you know, sort of like actively choosing to not to participate. It's somebody who was harmed and now cannot participate in a way. Part of what makes the film great is that there is that ambiguity. And obviously people were choosing not to participate in a lot of things in American life and I think it's just impossible to overstate how, though at times very bleakly funny, how just unsparingly desolate yeah. it is. And if we think broadly about New Hollywood and the 1970s as being the moment when cinematic modernism comes to America, we're still kind of accustomed to the classic Beckettian, I can't go on, I'll go on like Wanda it's just I can't go on like it's just a brick wall again like to turn to Bresson like it's close to the end of the devil probably in terms of just dropping off a table and where does it go you know where does this movie go from here where does this character go from here it's impossible to overstate how rare something this totally despairing is in American pictures Mm. I agree with you. But again, I would point to that last scene as maybe expressing not I I would not say it's a hopeful ending, but perhaps expressing some potential for another possibility. Right. And I think that it's not just in that upbeat social scene, but very specifically in the way that this other woman, right, like the brunette who brings her into the bar, interacts with her. Right. There are these moments and, you know, Loden's camera really frames them where that woman looks at her with something like recognition. And, you know, she doesn't look back, but maybe she could. Right. There's some, you know, she's the only other woman we've really gotten in this film who is who is entered the scene and interacted with Wanda at all. So it's, yeah, maybe there's something there. (laughs) The blocking of that encounter is really, really interesting because Wanda is just sitting outside, like standing in a kind of daze outside of this bar. The woman in red, I believe, comes outside, goes upstairs to like get a smoke or a joint or who knows what, and then looks at her, looks down at Wanda, comes down around or and then brings her inside and it's very very again like the the delineation of space is very strange and very striking uh and another instance of the fact that like you know barbara loden was no joke when it came to like putting a scene together Yeah. yeah it's like this weird american translation of the end of knights of kiberia to me at least hmm. where you know like kiberia Wanda has nothing and you know she gets pulled into this these festivities but unlike Kiberia she's not going to sort of turn to the camera and give you a nod and let you know that everything's okay that her right. spirit actually has not been broken and here it's like there isn't necessarily a spirit to break because it's already been broken like it's just like you know fundamentally something is broken and like talking about the refusal aspect it also feels like 
because the Vietnam War was going on. It's like, I'm refusing to participate in this society that allows these things to happen. And her refusal to participate in the ugliness around her. It's not insignificant that the last date that Wanda has is with a guy in uniform yes. who gets mighty handsy with her, mm-hmm. whose life is garbage, yeah. and who yeah. is just about to uh, fly off to the Mekong Delta and is probably a total head case as well. Yeah. Right, right. Is anybody in this movie not fucked? <laughs> I, I think the woman, the woman in red at the woman end. Woman in red? Yeah. You know what? Uh, the bank manager's kids seem to be <laughs> having fun <laughs> out on the lake. That's true. Yeah. They're yeah. too young to know what they're yeah. going to do. And they, they see the the bomb and they're like, those are just hot dogs wrapped <laughs> up, mom. Mom, you can calm down now. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. anyway. On that brief moment of joy, we'll have to end it. But before we do, it would be great if we could each go around and say a film that we saw recently that we liked. I saw Laura Poitras' Risk. The first time I saw it, I didn't really understand fully what Poitras was doing almost. And then I watched it a second time and I liked it a lot more because it's a very subtle critique, I think, of casual sexism and just relationships and power and just how those those power relationships translate to people being locked out of people with a lot of things to offer being locked out of certain situations. So specifically in this, it's like, you know, there are a lot of women who could be contributing to, you know, fighting for transparency and men who feel strongly about supporting women, but they don't feel comfortable doing that because the men involved in these circles like Jacob Applebaum or Julian Assange are so gross that they don't want to participate and they remove themselves. And it's like, it's an example of like the left fighting itself, but you understand why, because it's like, if these are the leaders, what is anybody's impetus to sort of participate in this? And then also I think the ending, which is like, takes you, takes you up to like two months ago when she when the movie was released maybe uh just really lets you know that this story is developing and uh just how julian assange is portrayed in the film it's not even like oh he did something with russia it's like this guy is such a dumbass he could have done he could have <laughs> done something with russia and not really known because he's just so indiscriminate and kind of sloppy even though he thinks he's hot shit so i quite liked it i saw joao pedro rodriguez is the ornithologist oh, yeah. And I enjoyed it. I liked it. It has beautiful nature shots in it. (laughs) It's about a bird watcher who gets uh, swept away in his canoe. And then just a series of strange things happen to him. It's very abstract. It's also erotic in very unexpected ways, Mm -hmm. which I kind of liked. And um, it's been compared to, I think it's been compared to like late Boonwell. I can kind of see that a little bit, but I, I did. I liked it. I probably have to see it again, though, to really grasp it. I just watched Jane Campion's first film, Sweetie, which I'd never seen. Yeah, and I loved it. And I was moved by many, many scenes in it. But how I read it was as a portrayal of mental illness in a family. And it seemed to me a very 
unsentimental but and very accurate portrayal of how a mentally ill member of a family in unexpected and irredeemable ways transforms its dynamics and its um, other members. So I was, uh, you know, it's, it's also a very quirky, funny, charming film, but I think at its core, you know, it's a film sort of about a sister who is, you know, always in relation to her sister's mental illness. Um, so I found it, I found it wonderful for that reason. I actually um, watched Ilya Kazan's 1972 film, The Visitors, in, in preparation to come here because it's a movie I'd always sort of wanted to get around to in part because it has this reputation as being Kazan's rejoinder to Wanda where he is looking at some of the things that his wife has done and uh, using the same DP and using a much more rough-edged style, uh, telling this chamber drama in which uh, James Woods is a uh, house owner somewhere in the rural Northeast who receives an unexpected visit to old army pals who it transpires he ratted out when they were committing some atrocities on the field of battle. And after keeping a very high level of uh, on tinter hooks suspense, things finally boil over. It doesn't have anything quite like the acidity and the sort of abruptness of Wanda because Kazan, he knows too much at this point. Like he can try to unlearn style, but he can't strip himself down to the degree that Wanda is stripped down. The discourse, however, between the two movies is really fascinating, and uh, I would, without hesitation, recommend it. Do a double feature. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you all for coming. Thank you. Wonderful. Violet. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast, sponsored by Filmstruck. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles, plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at filmstruck.com. The Film Comet Podcast is produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine, or check out our app, available on Android and iOS, at filmcomment.com slash app. Film Comment at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.